for the biblical songs we sang. They, they were fantastic. Uh, thank you for that and for having me here today. It's, um, it is a blessing to be here. I'm one that I don't want to fail to thank God for and to thank you for, for having me up and seeing um, some familiar faces and meeting some new people, new, new brothers and sisters in Christ. It's just a joy to be together. If you would turn to me to the book, turn with me to the book of Philippians. While you turn there, I'll pray. Father, I do thank you, God, for this opportunity to come together and worship with your people. Lord, what a blessing it is to know people from other towns, other places that uh, love you and that you love and uh, to come together and study and sing and praise you and learn of you with them is, is really a blessing. I pray now as we look at this book, as we look at your word, that you would help us to just be still and to hear what you have to say for us, um, that you would help us to learn to apply your word in our lives, that we would learn this, this lesson of thanksgiving. God, that it would be real in our hearts and our lives, and it would be obvious as we leave here um, that we're a thankful people for what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm going to give a brief, uh, brief background uh, to the book of Philippians, um, and then I'm going to get into the first, Lord willing, the first six verses of, the, of chapter one. But it was written, of course, by the Apostle Paul, and he was imprisoned during this time, at AD 60 to 62, somewhere in that range. Same time he was in prison at that time, he wrote the book of Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, along with Philippians. I think to get a better grasp of just what's going on, we, we teach hermeneutics a lot at Sovereign Grace, and context is king, right? I'm sure you guys have been taught that and know that here as well. Well, context within the scripture is very important, but there's also a historical context that we need to understand to fully grasp the scripture. So I want to just give a little bit of background of Philippi and what it was like, and it's just an interesting area in general. It was originally known as the Cranides, and that means the little fountains. And the reason that was there was there were springs all around there. So there was a great water source, and in those days, water was extremely important. That's where cities, a lot of times, or little communities, or whatever established were because there was a source of water there, along a river, um, you know, on, on lakes or whatever. Well, this one, there were little springs all around there. It got changed to Philippi when Philip II of Macedon conquered the region in 357 B.C., Philip II was the father of Alexander the Great. So just to kind of see the kind of connections in history of a lot of this, it, it was a central location to a, a lot of what went on in Rome. Um, he, he was attracted to the area because along with the springs, by this time they had discovered many gold mines. 
And so there were gold, there was gold in the area. So he, um, he took control over it and named it after himself, as many kings do. They weren't humble people. Let's name as much as we can after us, right? He was attracted to the, um, the entire area became under Roman control in 168 BC. So he was of Macedon. Romans took control over it in 168 BC and in 42 BC. So not too long before, less than 100 years before this was written or about 100 years before this was written. There was a name, the, the, there was a famous battle there. And you may have heard of the work of the man Mark Antony and Octavian from, um, I'm drawing a blank here. What? Say it again, I couldn't hear. Shakespeare, Shakespeare yes. <laughs> I couldn't think of his name. Yeah, so Julius Caesar. The book Julius Caesar, written by Shakespeare, talking about this battle. Uh, and they gained revenge on Julius Caesar's assassins Brutus and Cassius in this location right around the area of Philippi in about 42 BC. This is what was amazing to me. The, the, the brutality of this battle that was fought was incredible. It was 90,000 men on one side estimated fighting against 110,000 men on the other side. That's a lot of people. That's, that's 200,000 people coming into battle. If you've ever been to an OU football game, which I know some of you have been there to preach, you've seen large numbers of people. I think that stadium holds close to 100,000. So you're talking twice that many people, that many people fighting, and there were 40,000 casualties. And that battle basically ended the Roman Republic and ushered in the Roman Empire. And Philippi, the city, became a Roman province, and so there were many veterans that settled there. So a lot of the survivors of the war, even on both sides, wound up settling there. That was close. Travel was hard then. But it became a a Roman province. And later it became a Roman colony, which meant it had the same rights as cities in Italy. So they had Roman law. They had exemption from some taxes. There were other parts of there were other parts of the world that were under Roman control. And remember, Rome controlled a large part of the world at this time. There were other parts of the world that were under Roman control that had to pay extra taxes. Well, because they were a colony, they didn't have to pay a lot of the same taxes. And they had, so they had the same, um, they also had Roman citizenship, which was a huge deal. You remember probably when Paul was arrested one time and they were about to give him a scourging. And he says, wait a minute, you're going to scourge me? I'm a Roman. And the guy was kind of like, what? You're, you, this guy's a Roman? I was about to, I'm about to get myself in major trouble for treating him like he wasn't a citizen. So citizenship was a big deal. Um, and it, it'll show up throughout the book of Philippians in other ways, but understanding that 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 was important is important to understanding what was written in in Philippians. The church of Philippi was established in Europe. It came in Paul's second journey, which is around AD 50. Um, And let's go read in Acts 
chapter 16, we can actually read when the church was established. It's called, you've heard it maybe called the Macedonian call. Acts chapter 16, verse six says, now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatria who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And so she persuaded us. And so that was the establishment of the church in Philippi. The Philippian church was established right there in the book of Acts. Um, And you can see there, there's a few things you can note. Evidently, there was not a lot of Jews dwelling there. And you can tell that because on the Sabbath day, it was Paul's custom that he would go to the synagogue to preach the gospel there first. And so because on the Sabbath, he goes down to the riverside, it shows us that there were not enough Jews to have a synagogue. And the general rule was there had to be 10 families or 10 men, um, faithful Jewish men in order to have a synagogue. So there was less than that there. Um, And so that's why I went to the river. And so that also tells us this, that later on, so when he's writing this to the Philippian church, he's writing to mostly Gentiles. It's important to understand um, that the, the Jewish traditions are not as heavy with them as they are maybe in some of the other books. In a general sense, as we read through the book of Philippians, it seems to be a healthy and faithful assembly of believers. Um, it's a positive encouragement. And there's small problems that Paul deals with, but generally speaking, we're looking at a healthy church. Not like when he writes to Corinth, where there were large problems. This, these are small problems that he's going to, to, to address. So that's kind of the background of the book of Philippians. So let's look at the actual text now. And I'm, I'm reading out of the New King James. In verse 1 says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Okay, so Paul's writing the letter. He says that in the, in the introduction. He also includes Timothy here, probably not as a co-author, but possibly as one that Paul, he could have dictated the letter, to Timothy where Timothy was writing it and Paul was saying it or it could have just been that Timothy was coming to visit him in prison and was kind of like giving a salutation kind of 
like we'd be like, hey, tell him I said hi, sort of thing. But he, we don't see any evidence that Timothy actually had his thoughts in there. It's predominantly Paul. And then he says this, and we're going to look at a few words in this introduction that I think is helpful to us understanding our position in Christ. And this first one is bondservants of Jesus Christ. The word there of bondservant is doulos, which means slave. The, defin- the actual definition is one is subservient to and entirely at the disposal of his master, a slave. And so Paul refers to himself as a bondservant, as a slave, because that's what we are. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. We're slaves to Christ. We are subservient to Him. He calls the shots in our lives. And here's the thing, that is not a bad thing. The word has such negative connotation in our culture, doesn't it? Slave, bondservant, servant. Those are bad words in our culture, in our time. But I'm just going to tell you, there is no better place to be than a slave to the perfect master. There is no better place to be than a slave in the master's house, the perfect master's house. Why? You have everything you need. He's perfect. Now, being a slave to another human? Yeah, probably not that great. Why? Because he's imperfect. We all have bosses, probably. We all know a bad boss can make your life extremely miserable. A good boss can make it pretty good, no matter what the job, right? Well, we, are, we have the opportunity, we have the privilege of being a slave to the perfect master. And here's the deal. Everybody in this world is a slave. Everybody in this world is a bond servant. You're bound to something. It's either sin or Christ, right? There's nobody walking around calling their own shots. They think they are. We as Christians a lot of times think we are, but we're not. We're, we're slaves. Everybody that's walking around thinks they're unfree, think they, they do what they're told, is, um, is a slave to sin. I, I was watching The Blind Side the other day. I just caught part of it. I hadn't seen it in a long time. You guys seen the movie Blind Side where the, um, it's based on a true story. I think that's kind of light, lightly a true story. But I remember there was this one scene and they went, they were in the really bad neighborhood and this, this one young man was there with the drug dealer. He was at the drug dealer's house and they were talking about playing football and he said, yeah, I used to play some football. Or he said, I went to college. And he said, nah, I quit that stuff. I didn't like people telling me what to do. And then the drug dealer goes, hey, turn that music up. And he reaches over there and turns it up. And it was just this obvious thing like, no, you didn't want somebody telling you what to do that was good. You're, you, you have no problem somebody telling you what to do. And that's the way everybody is. They don't, mind, so they don't mind their buddies making fun of them and conning them and 
tricking them or guilting them into doing sin. You don't want somebody telling you what to do that's good. And that's what it is. We're either in a slave to sin or we're slave to Christ. There is no other place. You cannot be your own boss. Not in this world. You can't. And then he says this. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. And the word for saint there is hagios, and it means to be set apart or to be holy. And so the Bible calls all believers saints. So I want to explain another word here as, as we go through this, because this word has been so misused throughout history or throughout the creation of the word. The word saint does not refer to people who act the best or who are really good. But that you've heard it that way. Oh, that, that lady is a saint, right? You've heard that? When, and when you say that, what you mean is she's really good. She's really nice. She's really sweet. She'll do anything. Or that guy, he's a saint, which means he doesn't do the stuff that everybody else does. That's not what the Bible is talking about. When he writes to the saints, he's writing to the believers. And then you have the Catholics the Catholics have their own definition of a saint. Um, and so I thought, I'm going to look this up. This will be interesting. And it was. For, for Catholics to declare sainthood on somebody, there's a, there's a set of requirements. The first is that person has to be dead for five years. And they have to have led a heroic or holy life. I'm not sure how well the... Um, how well the good person test would do on those people that led a you know, holy life. I'm sure they would fail like everybody else. What does that mean, leave a, live a holy life? But that was one of the requirements. Of course, they've been dead for five years. And they have to have had verified miracles accredited to them or to their prayers. This is from the Catholic uh, website. It says, the prayers being granted are seen as proof that the individual is ready, already in heaven and hence able to intercede with God on others' behalf. Yeah, that's what it says. And I'm just going to let you know, if you're a Christian here, you don't need some dead guy with bad theology interceding on your behalf. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Because Romans tells us this, it is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is on the right hand of God, who's making intercession for us. Who do you need making intercession? Christ. And let me tell you something, he is not dead. And that's the difference. Those guys are dead. Mary, God bless her, was a faithful woman and was used mightily in God's plan. And then she died. She was a person. She was a human. She was in sin like the rest of us. But she gave birth to the one who was sinless. And He's the one who makes intercession for us. And He says this. He says that if you believe in Me, you're a saint. That's what Paul's saying here in his writing. That's what the Bible says. Not because we've lived some great life. No. But because Jesus Christ lived it for us. He lived the perfect life and he says we're saints, so that makes us saints. So when Paul is writing this letter to the church in Philippians, he's writing it to the believers there. 
Everyone who's a believer, that's who this is to. Now, it is not addressed to the non-believers. It is not addressed to the ones who are there that aren't saints. So keep that in mind. And then he says this, with the bishops and deacons. With the bishops and deacons. And so I'm going to go some more vocabulary here. I'm sorry. But I think it's important that we understand the terms that we use. The word bishop, it means overseer. It's, it's basically a synonym with elder or pastor when you're talking about the office of elder or pastor, deacon. They're responsible to lead, preach, and teach. They're responsible to help the spiritually weak and care for the church and ordain other leaders. And you notice here too, Paul's writing this to one church, the church in Philippi, but he addresses it to the deacons, plural. And if you read through the New Testament, every time he talks about the bishops or the deacons, it's always in a plural form, which is why we believe in a plurality of elders, in a plurality of pastors. That is the scriptural reason that we believe that. At Sovereign Grace, if you talk to any of my co-elders or me, we can make a long list of reasons. And I think probably you guys are really seeing a need for plurality of elders. And so I would encourage you as a church to pray earnestly for a co-elder for my brother here. He's in need. He does not even know how much he's in need because he's never seen it on the other side. But he is in need of a co-elder. There's just a few reasons to make that make sense. One is we need pastors too. The elders need pastoring. The elders need guidance. The elders need somebody to shepherd them. And it is very important that we have somebody to help hold each other accountable. So anyway, that, that is, it's a shepherd. And, and don't forget the word shepherd there, or the, the word overseer, and as it's compared to a shepherd many times in scriptures, I think we can really help to understand the position if you really do consider how a shepherd cares for sheep. Sometimes it's a very gentle leading of the sheep. And sometimes it's a frantic searching for the lost one, right? And sometimes it's a harsh correction with a shepherd's staff. And sometimes it is a extremely harsh shot with a sling or with the staff to a wolf. And that's a difficult position, but it is important that we, if we look at that comparison, it, it helps us understand. He says, but he's writing with the bishops and the deacons. And so now let's look at the word deacon, which means those who serve. They're servants. And, and this is probably one of the most frustrating things to me in general churches, in a lot of churches that you go to. We've been serving, it's almost like Sovereign Grace has filled the pulpit for Pontotoc County for the last year or so. I mean, anybody any, that we've sent and ourselves have went to a lot of different churches with churches that don't have pastors. And as we go and we hear the reports back from some of the young men we've sent out and we ourselves have went out, there's a common theme within Baptist churches. And that is they have the, they have the position of elder misunderstood 
And they have the position of deacons misunderstood. And most of them are deacon-led. Most of them claim to be congregational-led, which is also, I don't see that in Scripture, but most what usually happens is the deacons are actually trying to fill the role of an elder. They just don't preach. And so they got this mixed up idea of what bishops and deacons or, or pastors and deacons are. The pastor to them is the guy that come and preaches. They run the church and hire and fire him. And it's just not what we see here in scripture. It's not what Paul is addressing here. It's not what the words themselves mean. A deacon is a servant. And they serve the church in any way that's necessary, basically. And, and God bless them um, because we, they are extremely important. Extremely important to the work of God. Extremely important to the family of the church. Um, to the f- outgoing of the kingdom. And so many times it's thankless. So many times their work is unseen, unnoticed until it's not done. Right? Nobody notices that the trash isn't taken out until it's overflowing. But they do those things behind the scene as thankless servants and God bless them for it. And I promise you, God sees it. I promise he does. So God bless our deacons. And that's another thing um, that we should be praying for deacons. We should be praying for bishops and elders and, and that men would be raised up from within the ranks to fill those positions and that God would send them from other places to fill those positions so that God's name would be glorified and that his kingdom could go out and his gospel would go forth. So that's the introduction. First verse. And then in, in, in verse two, as, as very common to Paul, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can make a whole sermon out of that, but I'm not going to today. I'm gonna to keep this one short. But it is a reminder that grace itself is granted to us by God. And it reminds us that the only true peace in this world is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse three says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. I think we can learn so much from the Apostle Paul just in his salutations. There's been a lot of sermons preached in just his introductions and I, th- I thought about this. I, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. And I thought about, how do I pray? Am I that earnest? How do you pray? Do you continually give thanks for other groups of believers? Do you give thanks for this group of believers? Do you pray for this group of believers? This is your family. You guys are in this together. Do you thank God for that? Do you pray for each one individually? He's placed you here for whatever reason. We may, or you may or may not know it. Whatever reason you're here, and it's not by accident. You guys believe in providence. You believe in the guiding, directing of the Holy Spirit. He's placed you here for a purpose. And you should be very thankful that you have a group to assemble with, a group of like-minded believers. There are people, I promise, in this world that believe like you do, that feel completely isolated in their location. Some of them drive 
a long ways to go to church because there's not anywhere close that they feel like is biblical. And so be glad that you have this group. And there may be people here that do. I don't know. But God's placed you here. We should pray. And as a general rule, I know this about myself. And I would be willing to say it's probably true of you too. I should be more thankful than I am for a lot of things, but especially for my church and for my salvation. And in verse four, he says, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy. If you read Paul's writings, you know he had to have spent a lot of time in prayer because he was writing under the inspired, inspiration of the Holy Spirit so everything that he wrote here is true. It's, it's inerrant. So he can't do like we do. He, he couldn't do like we do and say, yeah, I've been praying. Yeah, I'll pray for you. Am I the only one? Am I the only one that says, yeah, I'll pray? And then like a week later, they say, thank you for praying. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. You know, yeah. I've learned that when I tell somebody that I'll pray for them, I try to do it right then because I'll forget. Well, Paul earnestly did. When he says, I really do thank God, he's serious. He's telling the truth. John Gill said this. He said, he was constant and assiduous at the throne of grace and was concerned for others as well as himself, for all the churches and for this church and all the saints in it. And I believe it. And then he says this, he says, with joy. Paul not only, he, he did not only thank God for them, but he prayed on their behalf, making special, specific requests. And as you go through the book of Philippians, you notice this book is probably a lot more positive. That's what I was mentioning in the introduction. It's more positive than a lot of the other books. And Paul demonstrates throughout it his, his extreme thankfulness for the things, the way that this church has helped him in his journeys, the way that this church has helped others. They've, they've given a lot of financial help for, for the furtherance of the gospel. And so Paul, it, it's a joy for him to pray for them. And I hope that we can find the same kind of joy in the thanksgiving that we give to God. And then in verse five, he says, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And Paul was especially thankful for the fellowship that they had together in the gospel. We should remember Paul's thankfulness for many things, but now that we see he's especially thankful to see and talk to like-minded believers. You, you have that here. We have that at Sovereign Grace and it is a, such an extreme blessing. If you've ever been somewhere where it wasn't, you know how big a blessing that is. If you go and visit other places, you find out how big a blessing that is. And I was thinking, you know, there's a lot of people that I'm very close to that if it wasn't for Jesus Christ, I would have nothing in common with them. There's some that I would have other things in common with. But there's a lot of people, especially at our church, that are nothing like me. Our backgrounds are completely different other than Jesus Christ. And that is such a blessing. That is the fellowship. That is true fellowship. 
And I'm closer to many of them than I am to my own family. And I think you probably have that same testimony a lot of you do because you understand the bond that happens because they are your family now. You have the same father, right? He's brought you together in a bond. And do we thank God for that? Do we thank God enough for the fact that he didn't leave us here alone? Do we thank God enough for the fact that he is constantly working on our behalf and bringing people into our lives to help us in different things? And sometimes he uses unbelievers. He brings them into our life and helps us. And he brings people into our life and allows us to share the gospel with them. And then they go on. And later on, I think in heaven, we'll get to see how he worked through that and brought them to himself. A.W. Tozer said this, he said, gratitude is an offering precious in the sight of God and is one that the poorest of us can make and be not poorer, but richer for having made it. I think about gratitude and how bad we are at it and how we need to be thankful and we need to think on those things that make us thankful. And the next verse is one of those. Verse six, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. If you need something to be thankful for, if you want something to be thankful for, here it is. Verse six, why? Because if it weren't for the truth of that verse, every one of us would go to hell. I promise. But on the contrary, because God has done the work and will continue to do the work, he will complete it. I'm going to read three different places. There's, there's many scriptures to support this. This is one of those, this is one of those topics that's controversial within Christianity, but it's not within the scriptures. It's one of those topics that I fought against after I was saved. I fought against it for a while. Why? Pride. Bottom line, pride. But I'm going to read a few scriptures to encourage us to be thankful for the position that we have. First place, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter one, starting in verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in that last time. We, the saints, are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. Not by our own power, not by us continuing to do good, not by us continuing to stay on the right path, but by the power of God for salvation. God Almighty is keeping us. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1.
Start in verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God. Here's Paul again. I thank my God always for you. And this is the church at Corinth. A little bit more of a mess than Philippi was. But yet he still thanks God always for them, which was given to you, that, that grace which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will confirm you to the end. And look at nine. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ, the son of God, the one who died, will confirm you to the end. He will make you blameless. And then one more in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 12. That, who, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory? You were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. If you have trusted in Christ, you are sealed, you are kept, and you are confirmed to the end. Period. This is one of the greatest display of God's grace in a Christian's life Mercy in, in, a, in a grace and mercy in a Christian's life, but especially his power. Why? God takes a wretched sinner, and I think all of us would agree we were wretched sinners. He takes a wretched sinner, he changes them on the inside, but leaves us in this fleshly body, leaves us with a sinful flesh, puts us back in this sinful world that he rescued us from, and he keeps us. That is amazing. And you all know that your flesh wants to go. Bound to wander, Lord, I feel it. Take my heart and seal it. God is the one. It's God. It's the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus Christ. It's the Father that is saving us. And he keeps us saved in this wretched world. Not some of them, not most of them, all of them. He that began the work will finish it. Didn't Jesus say on the cross, it is finished? It's not up to you. And then you have the, the, then you have the arguments come in, right? This is what I was good at, the arguments. But... But what about all those people who left? What about all those people who said they were saved? They were all here and they, they were saved. We saw them get saved and now they're gone. It's simple. John clears it up for us. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them 
were of us. They weren't believers. They never were. It was a false profession of Christ. But Oh, so you're just saying you can go do whatever you want. In a sense, yes. Why? Because your will has been changed. There's this phenomena called regeneration that has not been taught enough that we've been born again, changed in the, in the inside, right? We have a new nature. It doesn't mean we're not fighting against a fleshly nature, but we have a new spiritual nature. And we have the Holy Spirit guiding us. Has anybody ever fallen back into sin since they've been saved? Yeah. Did you stay there? No. No, Why? Because there's no way that you can. Not if you're a true believer. If you did, you wouldn't be here with us and you would be one of those that were not of us. Right? Now that doesn't mean if somebody's out sinning, they can't come back. It's a different period of time for many, but the truth of the matter is, if you have truly been born again, He will not leave you. God is not a derelict father. God is not going to leave you and let you go astray. If He has become your Father because you have believed in Jesus Christ and your faith is in Him and you are covered by His blood, He will bring you back. It may be with much, much chastisement. It may be with some difficult correction, but He will bring you back. He will not let His child go. That's what it means when the shepherd left the 99 to go seek the one. It wasn't a lost one. He wasn't going after a goat. No, he was going after another sheep. He will not leave one. He will not lose one. He's the perfect shepherd. And so, yes, in a sense, yeah, you go do whatever you want. And in a sense, no. We have new desires that we grow in, but we also have old desires that said must be put to death. But I want to, I want to look at Ephesians chapter 2. We're, I think we're already there. Starting in verse 8, but by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And this is the, this is the point that shows once saved, always saved is actually a, the true doctrine. And it doesn't mean you go do whatever you want. Doesn't mean you go live like the devil. Doesn't mean you go live like the old self. And this is why, not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship. Poeme. It's like a poem created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Once you've been saved, verse eight, you, by grace, you have been saved. When that happens, God creates a new poem. You are now his poem. He is writing your life like he's writing a poem. The author has control over the poem. You are his workmanship for what? Prepared beforehand that we should walk in them for good works. When God creates something, it does what it was created to do. Look at nature. God created lions. They hunt. They kill things, right? He created fish. They swim. He created birds. They fly. That's what they are created to do. That's what they do. He created the saints for good works. There is no option in there. 
There is no saint that's going to be like, yeah, I'm saved. I've made Jesus my Savior, but He's not my Lord. What? He's your Lord whether He's your Savior or not. But if, if, you're, if He's your Savior, He is your Lord, there is no separating that. And it's the best thing you've ever had. He's your Master. You're His slave. It's the best place to be. And so no, this doctrine does not teach that once you're saved, you can go live however you want, but it's been misused in that way so much that there's people who fight against the general doctrine. And so once all of this, once all of this is understood, once we, once we get all of this out of the way, all the little distractions of misunderstanding the verse and people misusing the verse and people, all of these things, then, then though, for the believer, what does it mean? It means you can rest in Christ. Did you mess up yesterday? Maybe. Did you mess up last week? Yeah, maybe, probably. And he is faithful and just to forgive. That's why you confess your sins to him and move on. Why? Because he's already paid for them. And he is working in you. So every time you mess up, you're going to learn from it. And he is going to build you in better character. And when you go to prayer and you go back to the word, he's going to grow you in holiness and sanctification. And he's pulling you apart from the world. And he's pulling me apart from the world. So why? So we can be a testimony to the lost that God really does change lives. And he changes them in the little things. And he changes them in the big things. But we can find rest in that. Brady mentioned it in the catechism question, but I had probably heard some of, some of that. I was a legalist. I was raised in a way that I thought I basically had to be good enough to go to heaven. I believed that. I grew up that way. I wanted that. I wanted to be good enough. And it was a bondage that I could not bear. And you know what it did? It drove me farther into sin. Why? I couldn't attain anything good. I, I read the Bible. I believed there was a God, but I had never come into a true encounter with the living Jesus Christ who showed me grace. So I would set the bar here like, okay, I'm going to be good enough. I'm the guy. I'm here. And then I realized I was falling short. First time somebody came along and I felt kind of out of place and they wanted me to have a few drinks. A few drinks turned into a few too many. That became a little more customary. Well, what do I do? Well, I just lower the bar. That's well, okay to drink. And then, and then the next time, well, I thought, gosh, I can't, I can't attain that. I'll just lower the bar again. I'll just lower the bar again. And pretty soon you just go, I can't do it. I'm already failing. I might as well go all into this. And I was no different than any heathen, any atheist. I was probably living in a worse way than most of them. Why? Because I couldn't, I was, it was full of pride. I was going to earn my way. I was going to do good enough. I was better than all those other people, all those worldly churches, I would say. And then one day, I met Jesus. 
And you, you guys are going through the Pilgrim's Progress. You, you know the part where the bondage, the weight, the burden, it falls off. I remember that feeling when the burden fell off. And then I remember, even though the burden was gone, I remember fighting against this, thinking, no, but, but there's, there's got to be there's got to be a way to lose your salvation. And that was pride because if you lose your salvation, you have to earn, somehow earn a way to keep it. And then that burden fell off as well. And that's the point of this. Once we get all through all of that, we can find complete peace in our position with Christ. He is enough. All of those times you fall short you're not any farther away from God than you are when you're doing good. Why? Because it's not based on your performance. There may be a separation on your behalf, but He's not holding you out here because you've done bad. No, that's covered. Come to Him. Confess to Him. And He will gather you in and He will give you rest. And we can find complete peace and thanksgiving in our hearts. And it is a peace and thanksgiving that will last forever. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for the fact that you don't, that I don't have to depend on me to keep saved, to be saved. Lord, I thank you that, um, that it wasn't based upon me or you and I both know I wouldn't be here. And I thank you for this group of believers. I thank you for this group of men and women and children who have gathered together to hold your name in a high esteem, to hold your word in a high esteem. And I pray for them, God. I pray that you would draw them closer together and closer to you. And in so doing, the world would see it and notice something different. I pray that as they go out and preach the gospel, that you would provide them with people, provide them with divine appointments of your people that need to hear the gospel and that eyes would be opened, lives would be changed. And I do pray, I pray God that for elders and deacons and leadership here, that you would raise men up. And I also just pray, Lord, that they would be thankful, that each one here would have a thankful heart for the grace and mercy that's been bestowed upon them, the grace and mercy of having this congregation. And I pray, Lord, that it would go forth with that thanksgiving in mind that they would be rejuvenated and go out and share your love with the world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.